This episode of Cognitive Dissonance is brought to you by our patrons. You fucking rock. Be advised that this show is not for children, the faint of heart, or the easily offended. The explicit tag is there for a reason. Live from Gloriole Studios in Chicago and beyond, this is Cognitive Dissonance. Every episode we blast anyone who gets in our way. We bring critical thinking, skepticism, and irreverence to any topic that makes the news, makes it big, or makes us mad. It's skeptical, it's political, and there is no welcome at. This is episode 618 of Cognitive Dissonance, and holy shit, Dude, we got to talk about Russia, man. Sure, yeah. I don't even 100% know what to say exactly about Russia's fucking invasion into the goddamn Ukraine. Sure. Except for, holy shit, did we fucking call that. Yeah. For once, our intelligence was, not for once, but I mean, finally, our intelligence was actually fucking good and actionable. And, you know, we put all that shit out there and exactly what we said was going to happen. It didn't dissuade Putin. Putin's yeah. a fucking pugilistic it didn't fucking no asshole yeah it didn't it didn't dissuade him i will say this though if you look at his fucking uh playbook it's like right out of hitler's playbook i know I man mean, it's literally right out of hitler's I know. playbook i mean you talk about the people there it's the russian speakers that are here and we're here to help them and then he's talking about the certain places that are independent remain independent and he keeps on he's basically just following that same playbook I, uh, and it's i mean it's eerie uh, it's this this whole thing i felt the same way i'm like oh my god i'm like, i'm we're watching the German invasion of Poland. Sure. That's really what we're watching. Yeah. And I've been thinking about this topic too. I'm curious what you think. So <clears throat> for years throughout the Cold War, there was this mutually assured destruction idea. And the mutually assured destruction idea was that the big Cold War powers would not fuck with one another because if I lob nukes at you, sure. you lob nukes at me, yeah. and then we puppets. all die. It was always puppets. We got a puppet, right. you get a puppet. We make them Our fight. Puppets will fight. We make them fight. It's like two crawdads you caught in the right. river <laughs> yes. as a kid and you made them fight. But now I'm 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 looking at the state of I'm looking at the state of, of global politics and I'm thinking, you know, one of the problems with with having weapons the likes of which we have now, these hypersonic sure, missiles, yeah, these yeah, other yeah. things, is that these pugilistic powers like Russia or China or the United States, they can use their conventional weapons against parts of the world at their will. Knowing that none of us nobody's want gonna to, really do that. Right. Nobody's ever gonna do that. Because my big brother is not gonna fight your big brother. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So bit my big brother can fight your little brother, and I'm just gonna say, shit, man, sorry. Yeah. Because if I break out the fucking baseball bat, he breaks out his baseball yeah. bat, and we're both getting clubbed to death. Yeah. And I, you know, I think that just didn't happen before because nobody was willing to play that game of chicken. Yeah. And now you got a guy like Putin. Yeah. And Putin's like, no, man. I'll fucking stare you in the eye, drive my car right at yeah. you, and I am 100% not swerving. What I think is heartening, at least from the things that I'm seeing, and again, I don't know, you don't know exactly how, you don't know how big things are, and you don't know how how things really work. You're, you're sort of, you're stuck with these eyes that you have, which is the media, right? right? So what we have is 
a set of eyes. And then you also have a ton of people all across the world who are now filming things and then posting on the internet. But you can't really, sometimes it's hard to trust those things because you don't know if that's a bad actor. You don't know if that's somebody who's trying to influence how you think. But from some of the things I'm seeing, it would be hard to, it would be hard to, I mean, I don't know how big they are, but it would be hard to fake something like this is there's huge rallies yeah. that are happening. These anti-war rallies that are happening in Russia where there's some severe punishments for being anti-government. You know, right. there's some severe punishment. I mean, the last guy who ran against Putin, where's that guy? At? I know, right? Where's that guy right <laughs> yeah. now? You yeah. know what I mean? There's been some people that have been like, you know, suddenly gotten very sick when right. they fucked off Putin. And I watched a, I watched a documentary uh, about doping that was, you know, a couple years old. And it's a really famous documentary. It's on Netflix. And I, I'm forgetting the name of it. Um, but in any case, it's about doping. And one, a couple of the guys, one of the guys flees Russia who sort of is involved in the doping scandal there. But a couple of the guys are just like, yeah, they died of a heart attack. And they're like in their 40s or late late 40s, early 50s. And you're like, did they really die of a heart attack? Or did they die of poison yeah. underwear? Or did they die of like, you know, I mean, yeah, they had a heart attack, but the pillow over their head right. helped <laughs> facilitate that heart. But really, genuinely, yeah. Yeah. you know, you have a you have a country over there that is hostile towards protesters of that ilk. And they're they're out there putting themselves online. Yeah. Which By I think is thousands. really that's yeah. And I mean a lot of people, this yeah. is these aren't these aren't small crowds. And so and there's there's places all over the world where there's these anti-war rallies are popping up. Uh, you know, nobody's really jumped in yet. And I don't think that it's going to happen. I don't think there's no, going to be anybody who's going to come in. They they the president our president today said that he was going to send things to Germany, like trips to Germany, but not we're not putting them anywhere. I mean, he specifically made a mention to be like we're not putting them anywhere. And I don't know, again, you don't know how true that is. Why just tell someone your plans that maybe they will? I don't know. But as it stands right now, he has said he won't. Well, I think, you know, from some of the analysis that I was reading is that one of the fears is that, um, you know, the the rationale that Putin is giving is this like historical rationale that harkens all the way back to the Middle Ages, that these were always Russian-speaking peoples. And yeah. There never was a Ukraine, and that's a fiction. And he's trying to basically rebuild the USSR. Sure. And I know there's real fear that, he won't stop at the Ukraine, that he'll go into the Baltic states like Estonia and Poland. And, you know, those are NATO states. Yeah. So any incursion onto those lands would trigger yeah, an would, immediate have to. Now it's Now it's World War Three. Yeah, now it's legitimately you a can't, world war. You can't do anything. You have to stand with those right. people. They signed a up. Treaty. Yeah. So it's, this is, this is a, this is a scary place to be. And, and, yeah. you know, it makes me nervous as hell to be, it really does. It makes me nervous as hell because one thing, I mean, like Hitler didn't stop at Poland. No. A policy of appeasement is what Europe sought with Hitler. Sure. And it was like, I'll let him have Poland and he'll stop at Poland. Yeah. And, you know, there is some reason to think, I mean, granted, we live in a different geopolitical world now than the world of the nineteen late 1930s and 40s, but, you know, Putin seems to be very combative and yeah. very willing to use force very obviously to, to take lands back. And he's, you know, he's a former KGB agent, like yeah. who felt, I think, personally humiliated from things that I've read when the USSR crumbled. And, you know, this seems very much to be a, a, an attempt to rebuild that, that glory of the USSR, which is weird 
Because USSR had no fucking glory. Yeah. Like, it was not a glorious state. I wonder, too, you know, I was also reading some analysis that talked about how this could possibly be like a new Afghanistan for them. Yeah. So they they get mucked in, they come in, and then there's just guerrilla warfare like crazy against them, and it just fucks their troops up over and over and over and over again. They're not, it's not going to be a you throw a punch and I throw a punch. It's going to be, sure, come on in, and they sort of like fall back, and then when they start to set up places, they just start getting fucked up because there's a, you know, a guerrilla aspect of being on your own land that you can, you know, you can exploit. Yeah. And, and so that's another possibility too. And I think, I think that that's a lesson that maybe we would be, you know, the world should have learned that lesson from Iraq, from Syria, from Afghanistan, that yeah. it's one thing to roll into a country with massive, overwhelming military force, decapitate the government install a new government at a high level, but it's another thing to run in that country. It was it was different after World War II because you had official declarations of war, then you had official declarations of, of surrender. It, but when you just take over a country, we've seen, we've not seen any success yeah. running and holding a country yeah. in, in modern times. And I think part of that is the weapons yeah. that you can... You know, the United States can can sell stinger missiles and machine guns and deliver all that shit to insurgents all over the Ukraine, and they can make the resistance just painful, just gruelingly painful. We haven't seen in modern times that I can think of any state actor overcome an insurgency long term. Yeah, I mean, I mean, just just roll back to Afghanistan. How long were we there? Yeah, how long years. were we there? You know, and then finally we just had to pack up. And yep. leave, and what's going to happen? And so, it's it's a it's a very touchy situation, and and the uh, I I'm heartened that the Russian people are not behind. Some of the Russian people are right. not behind him. Me and too. I think that's a good sign. I, I hope that you know they're they're doing a lot of hard sanctions, but you know we'll see how much that affects their economy. Who knows? You know what I mean? Who knows if this is enough to you know turn the spigot off and make them stop. I don't think it will be. But, I don't think it will be yeah. either. And a guy feels, God, the, 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 the parallels to Germany feel so sharp, right? When, when Germany lost World War I, they were saddled with these crippling economic reparations for, the, for that war. And that is massively influential in their decision to launch the Second World War. And I'm, I'm looking and I'm like, man, these crippling, if these sanctions are genuinely crippling, will the response be to pull back? and cease aggression, or Only will the to, response yeah. be to further their aggression? Sure. And I don't know that answer. Yeah. I have no idea. Or pull back just to build up and then... <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. It feels like some shit we've seen before, though, man. Let's talk about that. D Tom, before we move off of Putin, let's definitely talk a little bit about Trump. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's so funny, Cecil, because I did these notes uh, as late as yesterday, and Trump came out again today yeah. in praise of Putin. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Donald Trump cannot get, he cannot get that man's dick any further into the back of his fucking throat. It's kind of amazing. He's, he's been, he's been nothing but a fan yes. the whole time. And now he's, and now he's praising him for his masterful play. Yeah. I, it, it, because this is a guy, he's not looking at this and saying, holy shit, you know, this is a, another country just, seizing hold through violence, uh, uh, you know, another another country's yeah, territory. another just, sovereign nation. Right, yeah. just rolling over a democratic 
country and taking that over the, and the loss of life. He's described Ukraine as a nice bit of property yeah. with some good people on sure. it. Today, he said something like, you know, well, he, he gets to take over a whole country for $2 in sanctions is what he said, you know, downplaying the the effect and the cost of Biden's sanctions, right? Because that's what we, has, yeah. he has to do that. Sure. It's, he sees strong men. He sees that act of the strong sure. man yeah. and, and the act of the autocrat the same way he sees business leaders. I really think he can't, he can't separate that sure. sort of like sure. combative nature and whoever the last man standing is. This story is from uh, MSNBC. It's time to admit the obvious. Donald Trump sure is acting <laughs> like a Russian agent. Yeah, he has been for a long time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it ha- when, when Russia helps to get you elected... <laughs> then I think when you turn to the camera during the electoral process and say, Russia, if you're listening, hack into my opponent's emails. Yeah. I think there's a pretty good reason sure. for us to say, sure. maybe you're in bed with the fucking Russians. Sure. You have a bunch of people that are uh, that are now looking at this and saying, you know, he's certainly, he's, he's not like one of these, he's not a fucking, he's not a smart guy. No. So he always, he, he you can always tell what he's thinking. And he'll just blurt it out. He just blurts it out. And so when you see him talk like this, you can't help but think, what has happened to you to make you want to do this? And he's been talking like this for a very, very long time. Yeah. Yeah. I think he admires the strength. I think you're right. I think he, I, I think, think you're right. I think if, if, if Trump, in tr- a guy like Trump would be like, yeah, if I could take over Mexico with little repercussion, why wouldn't I do well, it? He would do it. Would and, do the, it. and the answer is, because that's not yours. Sure. I, he because, would buy Greenland if he could. Right, yeah, exactly. Oh, my God. I forgot he tried to buy Greenland. Oh, Jesus. God, that's a thing. The, I know that there is some rift on the Republican side. Some people are siding with Trump. And then clearly, like, Tucker Carlson, there was, like, a whole thing where he was talking about how we shouldn't, you know, there's people talking about that praying. That guy's a straight-up Russian yeah, agent. There's other people talking about, like, oh, there was a story in here talking about praying for Putin. Yeah. You know, so there's, there's definitely some... Putin sympathy on the right, but there's also people. I saw a story about Mitch McConnell basically saying, "No, that, that that's and you shouldn't back that guy, and that's horrible." And you know, so I hope that there is at least some Republicans that stand with Biden on this to stop them from doing this. I mean, I mean this, you would it's you would imagine, right? This shouldn't be controversial. Yeah, I, what's what's in, what's insane and inane is that there's anything controversial. I mean, you have. You have a country that just is is invaded another country without provocation. Sure. Holy yeah. shit. Everybody across the world, I don't think that there are any nations that There's, I can yeah. think of that are not standing in solidarity yeah. to say, everybody's holy fuck. Everybody's on their side. So we've, but the idea that here in the States, the Russian propaganda has been so effective. And that's yeah. all I think that's is it. that- Yeah, that's, I, I, it's hard not to think that. It, it has been so effective that- there are people that are like, yeah, I'm fucking pro I'm Putin. I'm pro Russia. Yeah. I, the, polls. There are we have a story in the notes. There is there are polls that show that among Republicans, Putin polls better. Yeah, than than Biden. Democrats. Yeah, than Biden. That's how the fuck can an autocratic leader of a of nation country right that we've been that we're in at competition with, with too right for a lot of things. Yeah. We were in a cold war with them for fucking sixty years. Yeah, or thereabouts. Yeah. And, and all of a sudden, it's like they've their propaganda has been so successful that a, a large swath of the population thinks that that's better than the current president of the right. United States. Holy shit, what is happening? What is even happening? Don't be yourself. Officer, oh, officer, 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 officer. Listen, no, 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 Sorry, no, no, no. Please no, no, no. get back in the car. Listen to what I've got to say. 
He's not drunk. I've made a terrible mistake. I, I do this sometimes. I get a little. It's the adrenaline. Over and well, actually, it arouses me. Sexually. Oh, that. I, I'm so sorry. Please. Uh... All right, Cecil. So this story comes from, and this I have to pause and tell you a quick story about my grandpa. My grandparents um, moved all around the country, and at one point they lived in Oregon. And I went out to visit them, and I was a you know, kid from Chicago, and I went out to visit my mom and my grandparents, sure. and I would pronounce it Oregon. 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 Sure. And my grandfather would give me no end of shit. He's like, it's Oregon, not Oregon. And I'm like, it looks like Oregon. You know, it looks a lot like it Oregon. It really does. It really you know? does. And like, I always thought it was it the Oregon. rhyme with Gorgon. Right. Yeah. I always thought it was the Oregon Trail, right. yeah, not right. the right. Oregon Trail. You know, I'm like, Oregon's are what you have in your it's body, Oregon. Grandpa, yeah. you know. And then I came across their newspaper, which is the Oregonian. It is. Yeah. So then it must be Oregon. <laughs> it must be. And so when I found out that their newspaper was the Oregonian, then I was like, Grandpa, neither one of us are right. It's yeah, not no, the Oregonian. It's not. It's not exactly. You're it's absolutely not the Oregonian. Right. You're absolutely right. It's the Oregonian. The Oregonian. So you live yeah. in Oregon. Oregon. It's a big giant bar of soap with wires in it. <laughs> There's a, a generator, and a shaman. It's a whole thing. If you don't know what that is, you need to look it up right now. Stop what you're doing, listener. Oh God! And go search for Oregon generator if you've never seen one oh. of the funniest things you've ever seen. This story, however, not not funny. so funny. Not funny. Not funny. Colorado could become third state to ban police from lying to kids during interrogation. It's good, but it's not funny. It's not, and it's good, but it's also like. Holy mother of God, there are 47 states that where the police can lie. They don't even think twice to about kids. It. Yeah, I, I, you know, you saw uh you saw that making a murderer show. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hey, watching that show, no, regardless of where you land on on the grown-up, the Avery sure, guy, yeah. whatever. Like, <clears throat> I don't care. Wherever you land on it, don't send me your email. Yeah, I know. Don't fucking send me your serial fucking yeah, email don't about tell me Adnan did it. I, I don't I'm care. Tired. I'm you know, exhausted care. by this. Whatever. I think it is uncontroversial, though, to say that there is no world where that mentally disabled teenager had anything to do with that crime. There is there's nothing that should lead you to believe that. And especially watching the tapes and the pieces of the tape that right. they provided you, watching them mislead him, watching them lead him. Right. Mislead him and then lead him. That's a horror. And him getting the details completely wrong to, on every level. Every single every time. Every level. He, he's just making it up so that they will leave him alone. Right. He wanted to go back to class. to class. He thinks that if he says this the right, this is the problem with kids, is their fucking brains aren't formed yet. Right. They're just physically, they don't have all the brain parts physically right, right. that you have as a grown-up. So, you know, they think that they don't have these reasoning and risk-taking, like all these things are underdeveloped or not developed at all. So they think if they appease the authority figure, the authority figure will let them go back to class or let them go back home. These people never, ever see their homes again in no, some cases. They no. never get to go back to class. They never leave that custody of the authority. It's, I read this story and I thought, how the fuck do we live in a world where the police can even interrogate children? How, that, that's insane to me. How do we live in a world where the police can interrogate children and then they have to talk about whether or not they're going to lie to them and the first thought I had was, how do you interrogate children without a lawyer there? Yeah, how is it right. that there isn't a lawyer, even if it's just a public defender, in that room immediately? Yeah, that's that's what I mean. Is it, it's insane to me, that, and even a parent is not good enough. It's not good enough. It's not. That's what it's happened. With the, that's enough. what happened with the the the, the five. Yeah, the the, the Central Park the Central five. Park Five. 
one of the parents was in the room. Yeah, does not matter. Doesn't matter. These are kids. We think about all the things we don't let kids do. Yeah. We don't let kids act as their own act on their own agency in most of the decisions of their life. Most of the time. Almost right. no You're decisions. Absolutely right. Do kids have any agency? You're absolutely and yet right. all of a sudden, if they're gonna be, you know, potentially on the hook for a crime, yeah. all of a sudden they have perfect fucking agency. And 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 we can and we can do things like lead them yeah. and lie it's to them so easy. and make them think that they've been caught. And then they get pressured into saying things because, or, you know, not caught in this particular case that they're talking about. This heartbreaking case. It's so sad. They convinced this little girl yeah. that her parents molested her yep. because they Ugh. said, we told you were told by your, your older siblings already told us that they molested you. And she said, well, I don't think they did. And then they convinced her that it happened. Yep. And she's a little kid. She doesn't know any better. She doesn't realize these are adults. These are trusted figures in your life. Yep. You look at these people as, as the ones who you go to when you're in trouble. You've always heard that. I, I don't know. I, I know what it's like growing up as a white kid. So right. I know what that feels like. And at least when I was a kid, that was what I was told. Go to a teacher, go to a cop. Those right. are the two things that you always heard. If you're in trouble, do those things. That was a standard Gen X narrative yeah, for kids. For kids, it was a hundred percent. And now, you know, these the cops can lie to you. They can trick you. You know, do you really want to be fucking questioned by Loki? You know, like, I, right? why is that? Right. Why do we do that? Why do we think that's okay? I I am flabbergasted at the. You know, I, I don't know that you can pass a law that says the cops can't lie at all. Right, right. right. So, and I and I get that. Even I understand that too, but I'm talking about kids. Kids, are, yeah. kids is different. Kids, should, the police should not be able to talk to kids at all, zero, for any reason. I don't care if they are, in this case, they're not, this little girl, she wasn't, she wasn't the perceived, she was the perceived victim, victim right? Yeah. It doesn't matter what what connection the police have with kids. They should have no connection with kids. It's not mediated by a responsible adult. You're absolutely right. Because they, they don't have anyone advocating for them. And they have no ability to suss through that. Think about the reason that, that the statutory rape laws exist. Statutory rape laws exist because we recognize that children don't have the wherewithal to consent. Yep. So kids might think that they are, in fact, consenting to something. But we know as adults, you know what? Even though you think you want to do this, in fact, you are not capable of making a decision for yourself. Yeah. Because the stakes are too high. Right. How could these stakes not be higher? Right. And if you draw that analogy out, it's the same thing. Absolutely. I I, I hope that more states take this on and start oh doing God, this. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things that we've come across as we started doing the show. We've come across more and more sort of horrors of justice. And this one really just stopped me in my tracks. Because yeah. it's it's one of those things you just don't know exists. You think you think you live in a world where this sort of thing doesn't happen. Right. You know, or that if it happens, it happens on a on a TV, on a documentary you see about the Central Park Five from- From the times before. From before right? times, yeah. right? right? But it's something that happens all the time. It's happening right now yeah. somewhere. Yeah. And that's a terrible thing to consider. Absolutely. Hey, hey, so the book might be out right now or it might not be. Uh, check the show notes and there might be a link or not. Okay. It's ready. The book is here, Tom. It's here, buddy. The book is here. Uh, so the book is ready and the link just dropped. Not the audio book, but the physical book is Amazon link. I'll put it in the show notes.
Wait, what do you mean you didn't hear about the book? Well, let me introduce you to our mad lads, Tom and Cecil, who wrote The Grand Unified Theory of Bullshit, available in Kindle and paperback on Amazon right now. Navigating the marketplace of ideas can be difficult when there is so much bullshit to wade through. This book helps connect the underlying arguments used by charlatans and gives readers a skeptic's toolkit to identify the logical traps and pitfalls of different types of nonsense and to discard each of them using critical thinking practices. From paranormal and medical quackery to conspiracy theories in religion, the authors unpack the grand unified theory of bullshit, pulling out the common thread that ties these nonsensical and harmful ideas together. Available now on Amazon, not the audiobook. That'll that'll in the future. Soon. Bye. It's ready to go. You guys can buy <laughs> the book. So you can get right now. We, we're not sure that when this release is wide, we will have an audiobook. We're not sure. We are working on the audiobook right now. So we suspect next week is the audiobook yeah. release. The audiobook release, I will say this, as a guy who's editing it right now, it's fucking money. It, Tom is doing an excellent job reading it. We had other voices chime in. There's a couple other voices in there, but Tom is doing an excellent job reading it. And it is really, really good. So the audiobook, if you're saving your pennies, you want something, the audiobook might be what you want to go for. It's really, really excellent. The print book in soft cover while not ready as we record this and may or may not be ready for patrons, should be ready Monday to get. Now, patrons, if it's ready, you will have a link there to buy it. But if not, then the link will be on Monday. The hardcover is not ready yet because it has not been proofed yet because that hardcover takes a month to get. That's bonkers. It's crazy. So if you order a hardcover after it goes live, chances are it's going to take a month to get. But... It'll be a hardcover book. And I'll, I'll let you know what the quality is once I proof it. I haven't even seen the copy right. yet. The, the, I'm waiting right now for the last two tiny errors. I'm going to turn those pages when I get the new soft cover, which should be here tomorrow. And then I will make it go live. It takes 75, 72 hours for it to go live. And it's ready to go. The Kindle is 100% ready to go. So if you want to buy it on Kindle, you can get it on Kindle and you can get it on soft cover for now. Uh, when you get it, please rate us right away. Just buy it, read it, rate us. It, the rating is going to help just like it helps the show. It's going to help push us into places where people are buying it and people are seeing the ratings. And if you enjoyed the book, we encourage you to please rate the book and you know let people know it's a good book and give it a good rating so that more and more people could find this book. Uh, we're going to put links on this week's show notes. The book, you can search for it. It's called The Grand Unified Theory of Bullshit. Uh, you can search for both of our names, uh, the the co-authors on the book. Uh, we did a we we're, we're so happy that we we cajoled Michael Marshall into writing the foreword for this. Very kind, and of him. he's very kind of him to do. Uh, so check this book out. We are very proud of this book. We 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 spent a lot of time in we it. Did. We we spent you know the the time writing was easily eight hour days for you know maybe a month and a half of our time. That's a lot of That's time. a lot of time. It's a lot of time we put and into a, this. And book. a lot of time Cecil went into editing. And a lot of time into yes. the recording and a lot of time into editing the recording. Rereading, rereading, yeah, rewriting. It's a lot of work. It's a it's lot a, of work. It's a lot of work to put yeah. together a book. It's, it's a lot of work. It's uh, But I think we think you guys are going to like it. We also have a plan for signatures. We yeah. know that some of you guys want signed copies of the book. So here's what here's what Cecil and I came up with. Um, we have uh, bookmarks. Yeah. We have Grand Unified Theory of Bullshit bookmarks that we are going to print out and have available here. If you buy the book... And you want us to sign something, take a picture of yourself with the book, email it or, to our email or the receipt, whatever. However yeah. you want to prove it to us is fine. Yeah. 
email it to our email. Give us your address. We will sign a bookmark for you. And yeah. we will mail one regular old U.S. snail mail to wherever you're at. Yeah. We're going to charge you a little bit of money for this because yep. we, we don't want to go in the hole. We have to we have to cover our costs. But we're not going to charge a lot of money for it. We are still pricing out exactly how much this is going to cost. We'll make the announcement next show. But it's going to be what will happen is you'll send us a message and then we will just send you an email with a PayPal link probably in it. And then you just PayPal and then we'll get your address through that PayPal link and then we'll be able to send the bookmark out. We'll sign it. You just tell us what you want us to say and we'll if you have something specific, if not, just say sign it and we'll sign it and then we'll send it out to you and you'll have a nice bookmark that you can put with the book. And then if you see us in the future, we're hoping to go to conferences and stuff. And yeah, then when come the world see turns us. back on, we'd love to sign yeah. things in person. Come see us and we'll sign it in person. And you could also ask like the, the scathing guys because the scathing guys, all the all the people came up to us when the scathing guys were, <laughs> and I signed their when they, when they had a book and they were like signing the book. So it'd be hilarious to walk up to Noah oh, with our book and, and have, have him, him sign, sign it. it. That would be so funny. Be, you guys have guys, to Guys, you have to do it. It'd be so funny. So, and, and I will say no hard feelings. You got to do the same thing. Because whenever I had to sign, I was asked to sign Noah's book. I signed over his name on yes, the book because yes, it so, made me laugh. Yeah, so, so sign you, over. You got to sign, sign over one of our names yeah, for sign sure. Sign over one of our names. Yeah. It, it, turnabout is fair. Yeah, play. Turn, yeah. We, we, we've, we've, we have pranked them quite yes. a bit with this, <laughs> but we would love it if they, if you guys would do the same things to them. And if you see us in, in a conference, bring the book or, you know, we'll probably have copies we'll probably for sale and some, stuff. Yeah. And, but, you know, we, we'd love to sign it, but, but there's just no good way with a print-on-demand book to get the book because it's all, because we're doing Prime, but we don't, you know, it's it's so much easier if you're a prime person because then you don't just don't pay for right. shipping. So it's this like, is a cheaper way to it do just, it for it, you guys. Yeah, it's just like it's a it's such a hard problem to try to solve. And we think that this, you know, we had a nice bookmark design and it's a nice cardstock bookmark. It's right. cool. It'll be cool to have with the book and it'll have a signature. So we'll we'll encourage you to do that. And then that way we're not we're not shipping a book to here and then to you and then back and forth right. and all that. But uh, check the show this week's show notes for the link to the book. Please, uh, you know, if you're interested in the book, please buy it. And if you liked it, please rate it. We are joined by Dr. Ken Carmago. Ken is an MD with a master's in PhD in public policy. He's a professor and researcher of the graduate program in public health at the Institute of Social Medicine in Rio de Janeiro. And he's the associate editor of the American Journal of Public Health. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Uh, it's a pleasure. So the reason I wanted to have you on the show, uh, is it Ken or Kenneth? What do you prefer? Ken. Ken. All right. Ken. So, Ken, the reason yeah. I wanted to have you on the show, Cecil and I talk a lot. In fact, we even wrote a book extolling the virtues of appealing to expertise um, on subjects for which expertise is the right method to learn the truth. And we talk yeah. a lot on this show about skepticism, and we've been talking about COVID, obviously, over the last two years quite a lot, um, and a lot of the disinformation and misinformation that comes out. But I keep running into a problem as a skeptic I keep running into a problem of trying like hell to read good sources and to come away with a coherent narrative about COVID and about kind of what to expect in the future and how to understand kind of the place that we're in today. 
And I say that when I say reading good sources, I'm trying to read things from the New York Times, Nature, Scientific American, Wall Street Journal. I'm trying to read good, generally accepted, vetted sources. And I want to kind of go through some of the things that seem to be both out there in the world from these good sources and that paint a very contradictory picture and maybe get your feeling as to how to understand some of this information when we're dealing with it as a layperson. Okay, but before we, we proceed, I think that that's a very important issue that you're raising. And uh, first of all, I think that, that one, of, one of the issues around this is that everything that we're talking about COVID is very recent. And the problem is that science takes time. Uh, we are rushing things up because we are pressured by time, uh, sometimes with, with a lot of success. I, I think that the, the, the speed with which uh, the vaccines, for instance, were developed uh, is amazing, although they are not so, they, they have built up on uh, research that has been going on for decades. So it's not all of that. It's not ex novo. Uh, a lot of it has been already done. But one of the biggest problems that we have is that you have this kind of science in the making, which usually is something that is not open to the general public view, uh, being discussed in public. And that can create a lot of confusion because uh, you sometimes you, you have the wrong hypotheses. And it's, that's part of the, 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 the work in science is going through hypotheses and trying to confirm them and then disproving them and then having to rethink things and doing work again, et cetera, and so on and so forth. But when you have to give quick answers, this can be very confusing. I, I read something by a, a guy called uh, Gil Ayal, uh, and he has a very interesting remark about the whole thing about science and the, the, the public policy. Uh, he made an, an analogy that I find very interesting that uh, science is going on a very slow lane and politics is going on a fast lane. <laughs> and the problem is trying to find a compatibility in these two lanes, and it doesn't work out very well always. And the last thing I would like to point out is that uh, I'd add to those sources that talk about the CDC itself. Uh, go on. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's a great point because the CDC has been a frustrating and difficult group to manage <laughs> information coming from. And I don't think, you know, Cecil and I have talked a lot about the, the need, you know, for clear and effective science communication. And I, and I wrote down a phrase yeah. while you were talking and the phrase I wrote down, <laughs> it's making me laugh to read it, is sausage crisis. So we have a phrase <laughs> here, you know, like you, you don't want to see how the sausage gets made. And I it's wonder made. if we're <laughs> partially in a, in a little bit of a crisis with science and the communication around science and that we're being exposed really as lay people for the first time to how the sausage is being made. And I yeah. wonder if that's not creating some of that crisis of confusion. I guess so. I think there is a number of problems associated with that. Um, first of all, I think that scientists are not necessarily very good in communicating with the general public, <laughs> partly because the incentives for the scientific community are all there for scientists to communicate with each other, but not with the general public. Uh, and a lot of noise can be introduced, introduced in, 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 the, in the meantime. In the, as, you know, that old... Uh, uh, playground uh, play that we had, a uh, sort of game. Uh, um, it's called here the wireless telephone, that you, you say something in the ear, you whisper something yeah. in the ear of someone, and then that person whispers uh, something in the ear of the other person, and then we get at the end of the queue. Uh, the message is totally different from what it was originally. Uh, this kind of thing happens a lot because it's very hard. Uh, 
some of the things that people are trying to communicate demand a lot of background. And not everyone has the patience to listen to a, a, an hour lecture on, on viruses and the immune system and whatnot and epidemiology and all the things that are associated with that. And you try to come out with sound bites and, and then a lot of can go wrong in that. And I think the other problem that we have is the role of the internet and all these uh, bubbles that have formed around it that people are very, you have very little exposure uh, when you are inside the bubble to things that effect effectively challenge it. So I, I think that a lot of th this compounds the problem that was already there, I think, in terms of this whole issue about communication. And the thing is, it takes time to be, to have some, uh, to be sure about some of the things that we say. And that time wasn't a luxury that we could afford, at least not in the initial phases of the epidemic. Now we have a lot more of, of stable knowledge, if you can call it that. But as it was in the making, it was very hard to, to come up with definitive answers that people were demanding. Do you think that a vaccine coming out within a year was, uh, was actually a detriment to, the, to what actually happened with COVID? Do you think if it would have taken a little more time, people would have been a little more accepting of it? I, I don't think so, because the, the vaccines came... Uh, let me, nothing, no, there was nothing wrong with the time. It, it, it was a surprise. I, I, I can admit that I was surprised by it because the, the previous experience that we had with, with vaccines took a lot longer than, than that. But all the steps that had to be taken in order to make sure that the vaccine was safe and effective were taken. Uh, nothing was skipped. The, 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 the only thing that perhaps they have done is to do some parts of the studies in parallel instead of waiting for something to end and then begin the, sure. the other phase. I, I think the problem is that there was a lot of, the, the, there is a lot of suspicion around vaccines, uh, unfortunately. Uh, and, and I think this this has compounded. I think the whole the whole climate of public discussion all over the world is very poisoned by conspiracy theories and stuff like that. So it's very hard. Uh, I, I I don't see how having another year uh, waiting for a vaccine to come would make a huge difference, honestly. And on the other hand, I think that having the vaccine as early as we had was instrumental in in at least in the places that people really got vaccinated and in getting the, the <laughs> yeah. pandemic under control. Sure. So I, I wonder, I wonder, you know, you said, you said a couple of things that, that I, I wrote down some, some notes for. So much of the language of science is written in a way that lay people like myself, you know, my, my education background is in English literature. I have no ability to read and really interpret and understand scientific papers, like as primary sources, like they're written in a language that I frankly do not speak. I don't have that. I don't have access to that knowledge. And I wonder, you know, when those things get translated, and I, I really think it is a translation, it's translated from yep. the language of, of whatever scientific discipline they're written in. And then I think they're um, analogized and the analogized you know, they're analogized by scientific press writers. And then those analogies become how we as lay people come to understand what's true. And then people pick apart the semantics and rhetoric around the analogy that was used to describe science. And I wonder if, if there isn't a growing need for some kind of, I don't know, some kind of translation, some kind of like universal lay person's language. I, we run into this problem in parts of science that are less urgent. You know, we run into this yeah. problem where people 
misunderstand what the word theory means, for example. That's very common in the skeptical community, right? So, oh, that's just a theory. And, you know, scientists use theory one way and colloquially we use it another. And I wonder if, if, if there isn't a pressing need for some kind of universal middle ground language linguistically. Yeah, well, first of all, this is a real, really serious problem. Just, just to make a point, I was until, for, until two years ago, uh, I was for four years the director of research in my university. And we have a program of incentives for researchers that is a, is a kind of competition. People have to submit their projects and they are evaluated by committee and the curricula, et cetera, and so on and so forth. And people who have better curricula, better projects get the grants and those who doesn't, they are left out. And we try to sort of making things accessible to a wider audience. We ask it for everyone that was submitting a project uh, to write a small paragraph describing in lay terms what the research was about. And I have to tell you, uh, I, I, I'm a medical doctor. I have a PhD in public health. I worked with a colleague that was this very, very accomplished scientist in, in basic science and basic biological science. And there was a lot of the stuff that came out that was supposedly in lay, layman's terms that we both couldn't understand. So, <laughs> yeah, this, this, this is really Did a Did you just hand it back and say no? <laughs> just no. What? No. Yeah. You got to so, make it. What you got to do is you got to get them in an elevator and tell you on the way down an elevator like an elevator pitch. Right. If they can't tell you yeah. on the way down in one elevator ride, you just reject like, their application. Pretend I'm your drunk uncle and it's Easter. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, this is not something that is done to make things more difficult. It's just that you you develop a sort of shorthand for the, sure. the language uh, that is necessary for scientific communication. You get so used to use it on the, your daily life with other colleagues that are working in the same field that getting things across can be very complicated. But having said that, uh, there is an author that I like a lot that I have used a lot in, in, in my own research called Harry Collins. He's a professor, if I'm not forget mistaken in Manchester in the UK. He's a sociologist of science and he has written a lot about expertise and he, he talks about different kinds of expertise. And one of the things that he, he, he writes about and he has used himself as an example is the difference between what he call a contributive expert and an interactional expert. The contributive aspect is what you people usually think about when you're talking about experts. Someone that does actual things, the researcher that does the actual research. But he says there is another kind of expert. There is someone who can, uh, to put it bluntly, can can talk the talk but cannot walk the walk. And he, hey, he uses me. himself. <laughs> yeah, he uses himself as an example. Uh, he has been studying the scientists that work with uh, gravitational waves for over 40 years. And it got to a point that he understands them. He can talk back to them, have a meaningful conversation. But obviously, he cannot. He's a sociologist. He cannot conduct the experiments. But at, at one point, he was able to propose a hypothesis that the scientists managed to turn that into an experiment. So I think oh. that we need a people like these that, that should be, would be sort kind of like this, this translators that you were talking about, of amphibians, <laughs> that know both languages, you know, like, like those people who are uh, the, the privileged informants from, for anthropologists. We need this kind of people that is, can be uh, conversant in the language of science, but at the same time can make it understandable by other people. And, and this is not easy, but there are people that can do that. Uh, we have a couple of guys here in Brazil that have been doing that. 
on the internet, which I think is also very important, using the, 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 the social networks. And you have people who are uh, disseminators of science, uh, like uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson or Bill Nye, that do a very good job at that. So I think we need more people doing this. But there are many obstacles on the way. But I think that definitely this is something that we need. Yeah, I wonder if there, you know, one thing that, that watching the public reaction, the sort of social media reaction to the pandemic is it's 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 turned the entire world into the worst set of armchair epidemiologists we could have possibly asked for. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just, and, and I'll raise my hand and say myself included. And I think, you know, one of the problems is that feels necessary. You know, the, the, the information that's out there is voluminous and sometimes contradictory. And so trying to sort through that to understand how to behave, how to assess your risk, how to know in a, in a constantly evolving environment which information sources are accurate. And so, you know, should I go to the grocery store? Should I stay the hell home? Should I, you know, rinse things off? Is that not necessary? Are, are masks essential? Which kinds? What about kids? The, the number of questions and decisions that we as, as lay people have been asked and forced to make, I mean, it's not an insignificant amount of stuff. No. No, absolutely and not. It, 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 trying to sort through that is very challenging. Yeah. What what suggestions do you have to sort that well? It's a daunting task. Uh, first of all, I think that uh, we are very bad at assessing risk. That's one thing in general. Uh, unless you were specialized in it like an epidemiologist, the, the kind of intuitive response that people have to assessing risk is very, very bad. Uh, and we see that in practice all the time. Uh, I, I think it's that there is no easy. Unfortunately, I, I wish I had. I, I would earn a lot of money if I no, had. No, I an don't need it to that. be an easy answer. I, I'm okay with complicated, and I'm okay with even answers like yeah. there isn't a good answer. If yeah. that's true, I, I mean, I think yeah. the, the thing is we need we need to look at organs like the WHO or the, the CDC itself. Uh, at at some point, they're going to come out with the answers, uh, and I think it's it's correct that people challenge what they are saying. But it cannot get to the point, I think that we're, you were talking about skepticism at the beginning of this conversation, and I think the skepticism is very important, but skepticism is not simply denying anything that anyone says right. all the time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. You see, it, it reminds me of the, the famous Monty Python sketch of the, 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 the argument clinic. <laughs> no, it isn't. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. So <laughs> that, that, that's not being skeptic. Uh, being skeptic is being able to challenge and show me your data, show me your reasoning. I think that's one very important thing that, uh, and I think that's, that's something that scientists should, should be more concerned with. It's not just showing the results of scientific research, but how we arrive at those results so that people can understand how we proceed. And then I think there would be more uh, amenable to, to rational argument and, and to accept the conclusions that we arrive. Uh, but at some point, the, the, simply there is no, we have to take decisions. I, I go back to that, what they all said about the different lanes. We have to take decisions with bad data, with insufficient data, with not enough time to really think about things or to make the experiments or to get all the data that we need to make a decision. So I think that we have to, to sort of figure out what's going on and there are some general principles that, that weren't that hard, actually, to understand. You have a contagious disease that clearly, from the very start, uh, is airborne, that is spread through direct contact between people. So 
there is a number of measures that should should be very clear from the beginning. The, the issue around masks, for for instance, there was a problem at the beginning because we weren't quite sure of the propagation of the viruses from one person to another. But as it became clear that the main route of transmission was direct contact, masks are absolutely, there is no more discussion about that. People should wear masks when in close contact. Uh, Trying to avoid being close to people, trying to avoid uh, agglomeration in closed spaces. So this is a kind of thing that's that's simple measures that that could have been taken. Uh, The other thing is that unfortunately, that there was disputing narratives in dispute around the thing, and not necessarily because that's one of the problems that we have with this kind of public argument is that not necessarily everyone is really interested in finding out. Uh, I wouldn't say truth. I don't like that word, but finding out the the best possible course of action or the best reasons that we have for doing something. <clears throat> but they have agendas. So a lot of the argument about not doing lockdowns or anything like that was basically from an economics point of view. And that the idea was that economics trump the public health. Uh, so people were tr- trying to twist. It's, it's kind of like, and we've seen that in, in other situations like um, climate change or tobacco or, or whatnot. There are actors that are not exactly uh, re- using the same uh, rule book in the discussion. They have a hidden agenda and they are trying to distort things to fit their agenda. So I think that that, that complicates a lot. But I mean, uh, if you can show, well, okay, this is a virus, this propagates this way, this high, is highly contagious. Uh, so even if it's the, the lethality is not that, that big as we feared it would be, the fact that we have a large number of cases, that means a lot of people are going to suffer and a lot of people are going to die if you don't do anything. In, in my perspective, this should be enough to have some minimal consensus about the measures that we should take. Unfortunately, we didn't see that because we have all the, we had all the time people challenging the very basic facts that we had that were, at least from my point of view, quite obvious. And on the other hand, I think to be uh, fair, there were problems inside science it, itself. Uh, because this this whole thing about preprints, okay, that were created, right? Because you have this very not so fast mechanism of submitting a paper to a journal. Uh, it is reviewed by peers. It has to pass several barriers, and then it's accepted and published. Uh, this is not an absolute guarantee that it's going to be a very good paper. Unfortunately, lots of not so good things go through, but. It is some measure of, of quality control. Uh, with preprints, you don't have that. I, I, I think uh, people were, I think the, the hearts were in the right, right place. They were trying to contribute as much knowledge as possible. So a lot of stuff was published in preprints, but preprints are not peer reviewed and they are not necessarily that very good to start with. So a lot of people picked up those preprints and based on that, started counseling people to do certain things, like, for instance, take chloroquine. Based on very, very bad studies, if you can call that a study at all. So, I mean... Yeah, nowhere near as rigorous as the evidence for ivermectin, for example. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, my and God. All, all those crazy things and you know, pseudo-treatments that were going around. And that that's a, a general problem that we have with the, the whole wellness thing, that there's a lot of unproven 
treatments or, or treatments that are, that are proven to not work that are going around and people trust them for some reason or another. But in this particular case, this is, this is very serious because this got in the way of people doing what they had to do. All right, so I'm going to ask you some very specific questions okay. that you may not know the answers to, and that's totally fine. But they, they relate to kind of, again, trying to suss out where we're at and, and how to understand some risk based on some, I guess, sort of conflicting or, or challenging pieces of information. So you know, there, there, are, there are a number of articles. I sent a, a few of them over to you just for quick review. But um, there are articles that, that suggest that, hey, look, this thing is quickly, people are vaccinated in parts of the world that have access to the vaccination. I know most of the world doesn't. You know, this thing isn't going to go away, but with vaccination, the likelihood is eventually everybody will catch this, but it will be less and less dangerous as time goes on. And that sounds very encouraging for those of us who are fortunate enough to live in a country which has, you know, access to these vaccinations. And then you read something else that says something like, you know, 10% of people who get infected with COVID, whether it's symptomatic or asymptomatic, will develop long-term symptoms of COVID or potential post-viral syndromes associated with COVID. And that sounds kind of terrifying as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm trying to understand how to, how to parse that kind of risk in a world that says, look, eventually everybody's going to get this, but it won't be a big deal except for for 10% of people, it might change your life forever. And are both of those things... Let, Those things seem to be in conflict in terms of, yeah. of trying to feel optimistic. Let, let me try to unpack two things. First of all, I think that the, it's a tragedy that not all people have access to the vaccine. Okay. Yes, 100%. And, and that's one very good example of how we should be thinking in global terms and not this place or that other place. Uh, that's one thing. Uh, the, the other thing is that the vaccines do protect against the, the disease, the, the more severe forms of disease, and there is evidence. There was a recent study, uh, actually a, a review study made by a, the UK Health Security Agency that suggests strongly that the vaccine also protects from long-term COVID. So there is... There is Good, because yeah. I've seen conflicting information on that as recently as yesterday. Yeah, because... Uh, where... Yeah, again, I think that there's a number of problems with this because, first of all, long COVID is not very well defined, and this is right. always a problem because if how how you you can uh, count and have the numbers of anything if you don't have a precise definition of what you're looking at. Uh, and I've read that some of the things that have been called long COVID could be just the effects of being a long time in an ICU, for instance, and not necessarily necessarily linked to COVID. Okay, that, that definitely there seems to be something there, uh, but the precise limits of what we call, what should be called long COVID are not that clear. But even given that, uh, this review study was done, it's not a, a systematic review, but they went on over a lot of sense of a rapid review. And I think it's very encouraging uh, looking from that point of view. But given that, there is the other problem that there is, no case in history that any infectious disease was controlled by herd immunity, so-called natural right. herd immunity, but just letting people face the disease on their own without a vaccine. All the, the, the diseases that we managed to control were controlled through vaccines in the case of viruses and uh, uh, infectious diseases caused by viruses. 
Uh, so the problem is that as long as you have a large pool of people that weren't infected, the virus is going to continue to reproduce and new variants could, could arise. And it's a total toss up if that new variant is going to be less aggressive, uh, more aggressive. Uh, this idea that with time, everything is going to be better, that, that's not necessarily true. Uh, we have to have in mind that coronaviruses, we have been living with them for a long time. And a new variant, a new, new species of coronavirus, if you can call that, just arose somewhere. And it was not the first time we had the original SARS, we had MERS. So there is no, no warranty that this won't happen again. So having this pool of people that are going to be infected over and over again uh, is a sure recipe for having new variants coming up. And that can be a challenge because we cannot be sure that a new variant is going to be the vaccines that we have are going to be as effective against new variants. So the thing is, the main message for me here is that we should struggle for the, the whole world to have access to, the, to these and other vaccines. Uh, yeah. we, we only managed to eradicate, uh, for, for instance, uh, smallpox because everyone in the world was vaccinated against it. So do you think, do you think, COVID is, I mean, COVID doesn't seem like something because it's zoonotic. So it seems like it's got an almost infinite well of variability with, with the animal population as well. Or do you think that it is something that could be effectively long-term controlled with with vaccines? I mean, like the army is looking at a universal coronavirus vaccine that would potentially change the game. Have you read about that at all? Or are you familiar with that? No. Uh, no, I haven't. But the thing is, uh, uh, lots of viral infections are actually zoonotic in origin. Uh, uh, some of the strains that we have of influenza virus probably uh, arose from, from pigs or, or birds or whatever. Um, I don't know. I think that you, you can have a situation like, for instance, if you compare with the flu, uh, we have flu vaccines that are not that highly effective, but they turn the situation into a more manageable one. Yeah. Um, we're talking about probabilities here. And, and <laughs> I think the problem with making prediction, predictions, that, as someone said, that only predictions about the past are really sure and effective. <laughs> uh, so every, a lot of things could happen. Uh, I, I don't know if, it, if it's possible to have a, an universal uh, coronavirus vaccine. Um, that would have to target some specific protein that doesn't vary along the different strains or different species of coronavirus. So I don't know if there is this kind of fix. Because the problem with this kind of virus, the, the, the genetic material from the coronavirus RNA, not DNA. And a virus that, that have uh, RNA as their, their uh, genetic material, they tend to, to uh, produce more variation in the genetic, uh, in the genome than other viruses, which already produce more variation than other organisms. So uh, a lot, it, it's all the time, new things are being produced. So I think that this is something that we should consider. On the one hand, the importance of preserving ecosystems and not disturbing them so much that, that we would be getting in touch with new viruses all the time. And on the other hand, uh, having global systems of monitoring and control that would help us develop vaccines. I think that the issue with, for instance, with uh, messenger RNA vaccines is, is a very interesting tool, I think, that at least in theory, you can come up with a new vaccine very quickly. Uh, once you identify a, a protein 
and the respective RNA sequence that codes for that protein, you can create a new vaccine rather quickly. Uh, so I think there is reason for hope, but I don't think we should let the God down. And if there's one thing that we learned from this pandemic in these two years and something, is that every time that people felt too short, too, too early, that was a recipe for disaster. If you bring your defenses down too early, you're going to have a rebound. So I think that we should go easy with, I, I, every, I, I mean, everyone is fed up with the thing. Everyone is trying to regain a, a semblance of normalcy. But keep washing your hands, keep using the masks, keep trying to avoid certain things, and at, at least until we can be sure. And, and particularly in places like in the US, which unfortunately you have those pockets of people that are not vaccinated. Uh, this is a very serious problem. In the United States, we have a we have a group of people that we could pretty much guarantee we're never going to vaccinate. These are people yeah. that, and this is a large group of people. This isn't a small group of people. This is, you know, maybe 20% of the, of the United States population that we're thinking probably will never, ever get the vaccine. Uh, is it, are we just going to be stuck in cycles and cycles of this forever because there's no way we could ever return immunity at all with, with uh, an uncooperative populace? I hope not. Certainly. Uh, <laughs> it, 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 <laughs> so do I. I so oh, do I. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's hard to, to say that it's it's not going to be a problem. I mean, uh, when you, when you reach a certain level of population, a threshold of population protection, uh, the fact that you have people who are hiding in the herd is not a big problem. So, right. uh, but the problem is that when you have a highly contagious virus, you have to have a high coverage as well. Uh, so this coverage. For instance, for, for uh, measles, you have to have upwards of 85% of the population vaccinated in order to stop the propagation of the disease. I, I don't know what the actual number is for COVID. Actually, I don't think we know that. We don't know that yet. Uh, apparently, when you reach around 70%, 70 uh, this sorts of at least slowed down enough the, the propagation of the pandemic. But the problem is, these 20% these are not evenly spread throughout the U.S. Uh, you have, you have pockets, pockets yeah. Of, uh, yeah. where they are concentrated. So these, these areas are a problem. And, and those people are dying in large numbers. I mean, large compared to the rest of the population. Right. That, that's one of the things that I find more impressive is that regardless, of, they, are, they, are, they are seeing with their own eyes people dying and they still can come up. <laughs> with all kinds of stories why this is this is not COVID. Well, he died because he didn't get uh, 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 ivermectin or yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, and these people they and they don't they don't just die, but I mean, reading these stories, people get they get very sick and then they stay sick. They get they stay sick for yeah. a long time, or they suffer long term heart damage or long term lung damage, and we. You know, a lot of times we consider that like that's technically marked down as a mild case or a moderate case because nobody ended up going yeah. to going to to go to the hospital in the U.S. is a pretty high bar to actually get admitted yeah. overnight to the hospital. I I tell this story on on the air occasionally. Like I got meningitis, viral meningitis, but meningitis, wow. and they just sent my ass home. They're like, here, take some painkillers and sleep it off. So I went home and slept for two weeks <laughs> with a bunch of painkillers. Like they don't just admit you for anything. So if the only yeah. cases we're counting as, as severe are people who overnight in the hospital, these people are not only watching their friends and loved ones die, but they're watching their friends and loved ones become incapacitated, miss 
weeks yeah. of work, lose income that they can't replace. And they're seeing yeah. all of that and still digging their heels in. You mentioned something we've talked about on the show. It's something maybe you can speak to. There's something unique about vaccines that makes people feel weird. People don't feel weird about other medicines. If I go to the doctor, for instance, right? Yeah, that's man. a that's not yeah. a that's not a medicine that you can just walk in and get somewhere. Right. You have to get a prescription. That's like a medicine. That's like a real medicine. Right. And like <laughs> like you go to the you go to your physician and you get medicine for just about anything. You have no the fucking idea as a regular guy what it is, how it works, what's in it, how long it was studied. You go to the CVS and you fill the prescription and you pop that shit in your mouth and you cross your <laughs> fingers and hope that it fixes the problem. And that's typically how all of us lay people behave. And then there's vaccines, which for whatever reason, I don't know if it's because it's delivered with a syringe or if it's, I don't know what it is. If it's because it's preventative and we're weird about that, but we're weird about it. Yeah. Why do you think that yeah, is? I, I mean, I actually I wrote a paper about that uh, was published I think a couple of years ago about it's an essay about the, the the reasons for being anti-vaccine. I think there is a number of, of things for that. I think that for the the extant vaccines, I think that uh, first of all they are victims of their own success because when you see people yeah. coming down with polio, for instance, you are much more likely to get a polio vaccine than when you don't because the vaccine was successful. Uh, same goes for me, same goes for measles and so on and so forth. It's like the people uh, that won't second, get the flu shot because they've never had the flu, yeah, right, and you're right. like, "That's how yeah. it works. That's how it works, man." Yeah, <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. The, the, the second thing is, uh, I, I think, uh, I can't understand a certain exigency, hesitancy uh, by moms, for instance, because you're 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 not getting a drug for for being sick. You're getting something for someone who's all right. Uh, so when, it, when it's about your kid, you, you're going to think twice if you cannot see the benefit. And that, that's, that's the other thing mm. I, I, I talked about earlier, how bad we are in assessing risk. And we think that a very small risk is not a problem. But when you look at, at things like measles, for instance, uh, measles, they, the, the whole thing about be, calling those uh, common childhood uh, diseases makes them seem very benign, but they're not. No. Uh, measles can screw up your immune system for years after you got it. And that's one of the reasons that you have a high rate of, of, of uh, infant mortality in, in certain places, because they get measles and then on top of that, they get pneumonia. And you have a very, it's, it's relatively rare, but not that rare, much rare, long-term complication of measles called uh, um, progressive encephalopathy. That is a fatal disease. It's a, a fatal long-term complication of measles. But since you don't see that all the time, people tend to think they are not going to be affected by that. And then you have the problems of people who are active. Uh, you have anti-vaccine activism. You don't have anti-ivermectin activism. I don't, I, at least I'm not aware of <laughs> people being uh, well, having activism against uh hypertensive medication or <laughs> statins or whatever. Say no to Lipitor. But you, do have, <laughs> you do have that with vaccines. And unfortunately, you have that horrid, lousy paper that was published a long time ago by, by Wakefield. Oh, God. How much Just, damage did yeah, that motherfucker do to the world at this point? I mean, it's incalculable. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, and, and, and it's, I get so angry when I think about that because the, the idiot, well, he had his medical license revoked in, in, in the UK. And then he, he went to the US and became a kind of hero and he's making a lot of money on top of that. And, and the, the whole thing was so horrid. The, the so-called study was horrid. It was a series, a case series of 12 cases, even with, if, if it didn't have all the problems that we know it had. 12 cases is not enough to make any kind of a session about anything. <laughs> And, and then he comes up in all this brouhaha. But that, that I think that com compounded the problem because the problem is that anti-vaccine movements are as old as vaccines themselves. Uh, and, and I think that a lot of it has to do with how people do not understand how they work uh, on the one hand and, and, and the, the whole thing about risk assessment on the other. But the fact that you have this sort of organized movement that was immensely amplified by the internet, that, that I think, compounded the problem. To follow up on that, we've been following, we've been doing this podcast for, you know, what, at this point, 15, 15 years, years, practically yeah. 15 years. It was a different podcast before, but we've been doing a podcast, wow. this podcast, for 11. And, you know, we've been watching the vaccine, the anti-vaccine movement for a long time. Yeah. And while there were certainly vocal anti-vaxxers and there were certainly several pockets of anti-vaxxers across the United States, we didn't see this level of vaccine hesitancy in this country until COVID. And I wonder if that's a symptom of COVID mm. or if it's just a symptom of us now being completely enthralled by whatever we see on the internet. I, I think this this is not necessarily an, an either or proposition. I think that the, both things can go hand in hand. But certainly, I think that whatever the answer is, I, I, I'm pretty sure that the internet has a role in this. And, and the whole thing about, the problem is that the whole economic basis of the, all those platforms is the attention economy. They are vying for eyeballs. Uh, so you, you see something and the pattern of things that you are seeing make uh, YouTube, Facebook, whatever, show you more of that thing. Um, I, I like to give an example. I've, I've been studying German for a number of years, and I like cooking. And at some point, I made a search for recipes for fried uh, fried shrimp. And for some reason, some uh, recipes, some videos of recipes for frying shrimps were shown to me in, in German. After I saw one or two of them, I had an avalanche of videos of cooking shrimp in German, showing up in my YouTube. <laughs> so that's what happens if you, if you start looking at the anti-vaccinal risks of vaccination, you're going to be shown a lot of this stuff. And I think that, that after some time, some of those platforms took some measures to, to sort of stop the propagation of the worst thing. But a lot of the damage has been done already, I think. Yeah, they said it was 12 people. They said 12 Around 12 people were the, yeah, the yeah, perpetrators of yeah, almost 85% yeah. of the anti-vaccine misinformation yeah. that's been out there. And it's what's crazy is, is we're trying to stop this thing, but they are actually the super spreaders. They're the ones who are super spreading this information, yeah. misinformation to so many people. And, uh, and it's so frustrating because like you say, that there's a very easy answer to all of this stuff in the sense that you could easily just stop producing or stop giving people stuff that is actively false. You should stop creating a platform yeah. for people to send false messages. But we just like, you're, you're right. The money is just too good. They just don't want to lose the money. Yeah. I, I think that, it, and, and, and you have uh, in, 
about two years ago, I think, that uh, the director of, of WHO, Dr. Tadus Gebreses, he made a speech where he said, we're fighting an epidemic of, of a virus and also an yeah, epidemic yeah, of misinformation. It was funny because I happened to be at a paper bookstore today. I had, a, I had a little bit of time to kill. My wife was in an appointment. So I saw a Barnes & Noble. I hadn't been in a bookstore in forever. And I walked in and one of the first books that I saw was Robert F. Kennedy's anti-vax book, Dr. Fauci and whatever. Oh, God. And I couldn't resist. I just walked over to it and turned it down <laughs> because I... It, it's a tiny protest. It's a tiny petty protest, Tom, but I applaud oh, you. And I knew I as I was you. doing it, like all I did was create a tiny bit of work for an employee. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, like somebody exactly. just goes like, yeah. fucking asshole, yeah. and puts it, put it back up. Yeah. I've read that some people were going through bookstores and getting those kind of books and putting them in the fiction <laughs> section. <laughs> I, you know, there was a part of me that wanted to just buy them all and throw them out. Yeah. You know, part of me wanted to just buy them all and yeah. just throw them right in the yeah, trash. Print more. And just, I know. I know. <laughs> gonna it's, it's just, there's, there's no incentive to print more. <laughs> I, it's, all I did was just like, oh, this, this damn book is selling, you know? And, oh, and it's, there's, there's no, that's, and that's why I wanted to have you on the show. Cause Cecil and I talk a lot about expertise and how do we vet information in an increasingly difficult yeah. world where this is harder and harder to understand and harder and harder to get to things that are closer to reality how the hell do you do that? And we really both feel strongly that as lay people, the way you do that is you find experts. So we wanted to put our money where our mouth yeah. was at and have you on the show and really have somebody on as an expert because I can read all the stories that I want in Scientific American and Nature and New York Times. And, I, and the whole time I recognize that I am reading a translation of a translation of a translation. And it's important to have people on that are actually experts. So I am grateful for your time tonight. Oh, well, again, my pleasure. And just, I would like to add one thing because this problem is compounded again by economic reasons because to have a very good science journalist is very expensive and it's very rare to find these days someone who is a very com competent science journalist in, in, in the general media. So in the end, what you end up is with this kind of thing that people get press releases from the pharma industry or some research uh, institution, and they try to dump it down. And then you come up with things that you have a study that says, for instance, not related to directly to what we are discussing, but I think it's germane. Like for instance, well, we found association of this gene sequence and a higher prevalence of depression. And then you have the headline on the next day, the gene for yeah. depression. Right. Yeah. Because they, they need you to click on it. They yeah. need that. They need you. They need to produce yeah. content for you to click on that right. shit. Right. Yeah. And it, it, it supersedes yeah. the quality of information. Quantity of information is just more financially valuable. God, I have one more question. So when our, uh, our previous president, President Trump, mm. was uh, he touted uh, one specific thing that I was wondering if it works for COVID. Can you use bleach <laughs> as a way, <laughs> as a preventative? What? How would I Wait, use bleach as a preventative? As right? an add-on, sunshine. If sunshine. You if there's sunshine. sunshine, can you figure out? Can you tell us really quickly how would we use sunshine or bleach as a preventative for COVID? I mean, you can use it to clean stuff. You're gonna use. But I would strongly advise using it in your own body. But the problem is, we laugh at that. But there are people that have been using bleach as a, a 
cure-all mechanism. Have, I don't know if you've ever heard of the, the so-called uh, magical mineral oh, yeah. solution. Oh, yeah, absolutely. On the show. People yeah, are giving it to autistic time. kids and yeah, shit. Yeah, yeah. That's me. It's fucking nonsense. <laughs> it's, don't drink bleach. Bleach, guys. <laughs> you, you know that. You know that, that things are pretty fucked up when we have to tell people not to drink bleach. <laughs> right. <laughs> Ken, you were great. Thanks so much, man. We really appreciate all of your time tonight. We know it's a late night, so thank oh, you. Thank you. So we'd like to thank our patrons. Of course, we'd like to thank all our patrons. We'd like to thank our newest patrons, Jacqueline, Hoffa, be- Boy, Be- Boy. I don't know. I don't know how they, what are they, Basil Lip? Basil Boy? Is it Basil Lip? Basil Lip? Is yeah, Basil Lip. <laughs> oh my God, remember that shit? Elena, Justin, Nathan, Am, Steve, Steven, Trump's tasty testicle. Come on now. Yuck. No. That's just no, wrong. No, you're wrong. James and Brad and the people who up their pledges Murderous Crows and Vince, thank you so much for your generous donations. We really do truly appreciate it. Um, you're the reason why we can give, uh, you know, uh, our employees a salary or the reason why we're able to have a studio. So we cannot thank you enough for your generous donations. Thank you so much. We got a couple of messages. We got one, Tom. This one comes from Amina. And Amina says... Uh, that uh, they got a message in the mail, and the mail and the mailer had a fucking my pillow message, and we're gonna Man. put this fucking picture on this week's show notes. C- could you imagine sleeping on a no help save our country pillow, Tom? I the the thing is about this fucking nationalist propaganda stuff is it's fucking hideous. Yeah, the art is like. The ugliest fucking like it's like it's a fucking, Thomas Kincaid it's, level it's bad. It's all wolves. so bad. It's three wolves howling at the moon. Every single of one it. of them is three wolves howling. At the I moon. just like I can't. The, one of the things that is making me the craziest about the end of the world is how tacky. It I know. Is. It's just a. It's if it was tacky. fabulous. It would be. It'd be, it'd be right? fun. Yeah. Why isn't RuPaul destroying us all? It would be fabulous. <laughs> We got a message. Uh, this is from Donovan. And Donovan says, if the Christians believe in a trinity, wouldn't they insist on we instead of I? Now, this is going back to the story we covered last week where we are talking about how the Catholics had messed up and used we baptize you instead of I baptize you. And it invalidated a ton of baptisms. Yep. And therefore, those baptisms, without those baptisms, it also invalidated the confirmations and the, all the other stuff that happens afterwards. Any of the sacraments that happen right, afterwards, which is afterwards so crazy. are essentially on a... Um, it's a, like on a holy ground or whatever. It's like, could you imagine if if you if you had to take, let's say, uh, algebra one hundred and one, and then you took algebra one hundred and one and you passed, but there was something wrong with the record keeping, and then you took calculus, and then you took like fucking yeah, orthogonal right, right, functions, right. and you took differential calc, and then all of a sudden somebody was like, you know what? There was a problem with your algebra one hundred and one class, yeah. so you didn't actually pass differential calculus. And you'd be like, yes, I did, though. But one of the things that somebody pointed out, which I think is interesting, is they were basically like, yeah, it's so they could get more money, too. Right. Because right. they, they want you to donate. They want you to donate when you go do this. So there's somebody panicking, in, man. There's somebody in there, and they're like, oh, shit, I got to go back and get baptized again, and then, you know, whatever. So then they got to You would think at that and, point, like, they'd pay for your fucking punch card. You know what I mean? You would think they they'd be like- They fucked up your punch you would, card. You would think that they would be the ones who would say, oh, please come in. No, we can't accept donations. It's our right. fault. But you know they're going to be- Oh. They're going to hold that thing yeah, out there. Absolutely. We got a message from Vice Rhino. He says- 
I'm sure I'm not the only person to say this, but in regards to the anti-vax colony in Paraguay, it might be worth mentioning that one of the things that Paraguay is known historically for is harboring Nazis after World War II. <laughs> yeah, all right. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it, it, it all clicks. Okay, it's, I, I see that. He says, in light of that, the decision makes it a certain amount of sense given the ide- ideological leanings of a lot of modern anti-vaxxers. Okay, point taken, Vice there Rhino. You go. Point taken. I don't think you're yeah. wrong. Yep. At the very least, it's a bad look. You know? <laughs> you know? Man. We got a meme. This is sent to us from Seth. And Seth says, I hope you guys enjoy this. It's a meme of Hermione. And she's talking about the baptize you. We're going to post it on this week's show notes. It's really good. If you're a Harry Potter person, you think it's really good. If you're me, you're like, I don't get it. Okay. <laughs> uh, Colorado drivers. We got a message about Colorado drivers from Richard. And Richard says, regarding your Colorado drivers in the snow, most of us are born here, so they're fine. They can drive in the snow. But all the new knuckleheads moving from Cali have never seen snow before. They're a horror. And that is that is so true. You get somebody who's never been in snow before. Oh, they and can't. They, they just like freeze, literally. But one of the things that uh, that somebody else messaged, and I couldn't find it, so I don't know how to credit them, but they said something like, yeah, you, sure, your, your, your drivers are bad up there, but they're not as bad as Orlando. And the first thing that went in my head was, okay, smart ass, have it snow in Orlando six times a year and see what happens. Right. Uh, accumulation. <laughs> it snows like 20 times a year here, right. but a good accumulation six times a year and see what happens. Because, yeah, that's <laughs> what we have up disco. here. Panic that's what we have up here every single time. We have our drivers that are just as bad and then we add road hazards. Yeah, man. <laughs> It's so funny because it's snowing as we record this. Yeah. It is snowing and I will drive home from the studio in the snow and I will be just fine. And I guarantee there will be cars off the side of the road on my way home. (laughs) I think at some point, some of them just give up. They're just like, fuck it. I'm just going to just, they like crash slowly and gently into the soft, soft (laughs) snow and close uh, their eyes. Kind of bump to the curb. Right. Uh, I just, I'm going to stay here. They're all Ted Cruz. Like, (laughs) (laughs) I crashed my car. I'm going to Cancun. (laughs) So we'd like to thank our guest, Ken Caramago for coming on. Uh, We are uh, pleased that he was able to join us and uh, we'll put a link to his work on this week's show notes. That is going to wrap it up for this week. We're going to leave you like we always do with the Skeptic's Creed. Credulity is not a virtue. It's fortune cookie cutter, mommy issue, hypno Babylon bullshit. Couched in scientician, double bubble, toil and trouble, pseudo quasi alternative, acupunctuating, pressurized, stereogram, pyramidal, free energy, healing, water, downward spiral, brain dead pan, sales pitch, late night info docutainment. Leo Pisces, Cancer Cures, Detox, Reflex, Foot Massage, Death and Towers, Tarot Cars, Psychic Healing, Crystal Balls, Bigfoot, Yeti, Aliens, Churches, Mosques and Synagogues, Temples, Dragons, Giant Worms, Atlantis, Dolphins, Truthers, Birthers, Witches, Wizards, Vaccine Nuts, Shaman Healers, Evangelists, Conspiracy, Doublespeak, Stigmata, Nonsense. Expose your signs. Thrust your hands, bloody, evidential, conclusive. Doubt even this. The opinions and information provided on this podcast are intended for entertainment purposes only. All opinions are solely that of Glory Hole Studios, LLC. 
cognitive dissonance makes no representations as to accuracy, completeness, currentness, suitability, or validity of any information and will not be liable for any errors, damages, or butthurt arising from consumption. All information is provided on an as-is basis. No refunds. Produced in association with the local Dairy Council and viewers like you.